This is the West Concord Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you receive a blessing from today's message. First, this morning, let me say a word of thank you to all of you who were so kind in sending cards, gifts, words of support during this difficult week last week as we went home to say goodbye to my mother until we meet again. It's a blessing to know that not only do I have a family in Tampa, but I have a family here. And you all are amazing, and I want to thank you. All the kind support. The church even brought a meal over before we left that Andy thoroughly enjoyed. We got a little of it. So I appreciate that. You know, when you're faced with death and you're faced with the loss of somebody you love, it's difficult. And I'll tell you, without the Lord, I don't know how people do it. Because I know my mother received Christ as Savior. She's with him now. Enjoying things that you and I can only imagine. Seeing things that you and I couldn't even understand. And that's what we're going to continue to talk about this morning. As we are cruising through the book of Revelation. As we're reading the rest of the story that God has provided for us. We've already gone through 20 chapters in the book of Revelation over the last several months. We've seen Christ challenge the churches. We've seen seven years of future tribulation wherein God will join, judge rather, the Gentile nations and the Jewish nation for their rejection of Christ the Messiah. We've seen the great battle of Armageddon where the nations of earth come together after that tribulation and make war and Christ finally returns bodily as he said he would and puts an end to that conflict. And now as we move toward the end of the book of Revelation, we are truly getting the rest of the story. We are looking at eternity. When we think of heaven, this is what we're going to be talking about, eternity. Where we who believe on Christ, where we who know Christ will spend forever. And again, as we said two weeks ago, we get our vision of heaven, as we call it, or eternity, mainly from Hollywood and from artists. And I tell you, in studying for these messages and drawing out images, there is no artist that could ever capture the splendor and wonder of heaven and our eternal home. And again, we said last time we were together here that many people have the, the idea of heaven as being some just boring place where it's all white and fluffy. And we sit around in white robes on white fluffy clouds playing harps. Yeah, that's about ex- as exciting as watching paint dry, okay? It's just not, I don't know about you, but that's not something that I'm looking forward to in heaven. And quite frankly, that's not what's going to be there. Because this morning we're going to see a description of our heavenly home. From an eyewitness, the first century apostle John. He introduced it to us a couple of weeks ago. He told us that yes, one day God is going to renovate this earth. He's going to remake it to something new and wonderful. And oftentimes when you tell people that, for instance, they say there's no more sea. The Bible says there's no more sea. And for all the beach lovers and, and boating lovers, they get upset. And people often wonder, well, what will there be in heaven? What's going on in heaven? 
And I've even heard some people say, well, I'm going to miss this and I'm going to miss that. Well, here's the thing about it. You're not going to miss anything. You're not going to miss anything. It's going to be amazing as we contemplate it this morning. And when you tell people that, they say, well, I hope I get there. I'm working on it. I'm trying to make it. Well, that's not right at all. As a matter of fact, Vance Havner, the great pastor and speaker once said, if you are a Christian, you are not a citizen of this world trying to get to heaven. Rather, you are a citizen of heaven making your way through the world. And that's the kind of attitude we need to assume. If you know Christ is your Savior, if you've trusted Him and only Him to take you to heaven, then heaven is secured. You don't have to try to get there. You don't have to hope you make it. If you know Christ is your Savior, you're going. If you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you are a citizen of heaven, not of this world. You're just making your way through. We're just trying to get get our way through this world until we enter into what God has prepared for us. And, and will we miss this world? No. I love this verse in Isaiah, a rather obscure verse. In Isaiah 63, it says, Behold, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. In other words, once we get into heaven, once we are in eternity... We're not going to say, gee, I missed that. Gee, I wish I was there. Gee, what happened to that? We're not even going to worry about that stuff. Because we're going to be so involved in, in God and Christ. We're going to be so enamored with Him and what He's made for us that this world won't even be a memory. It's going to be so amazing. And so as we dive into that this morning, we're in Revelation chapter 21. Last week in the first eight verses, or last time we were together here in the first eight verses, we were introduced to eternity. John gave us the first glimpses of what the new heavens and the new earth is going to be like. Yes, there will be no more sea. There will be no death, no dying, no sorrow, no tears. God has prepared a grand and glorious city that will descend from heaven and alight upon the planet. John said, it is beauty, uh, its beauty is like a bride prepared for her wedding. Well, this morning, as we begin in verse 9, John gives us further description of what it will actually be like. And I guarantee you've never seen anything like this on TV or in the movies. Even if you go online and Google heaven, oh, you'll get artist representation, probably some very good artist representation. But as Paul said, I hath not seen nor has ear heard, at least up until his day, what the glories of eternity are going to be like. But John did get a glimpse, and he's going to continue to share that with us this morning. So as we look in chapter 21, beginning in verse 9, we're going to see John's first look and John's first impression. He says in verse 9, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with seven last plagues, you remember that earlier, he came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, and I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. You remember in the previous passage, he said, The city just descended from heaven like a bride at her wedding, beautiful and glorious. Whenever you are at a wedding, brides are beautiful. 
And as they come down the aisle, everybody's eye is on the bride because it's, she's breathtaking. Well, this is the, this is the feeling, the, the concept that John had. And the angel said, come here, let's go look this place over. Let's see some, some extra detail. It says in verse 10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. He goes on to say in verse 11, here, that was his first look. He's going to give us his first impression. Having the glory of God, her light was like a precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now understand in John's day, while they had diamonds in that day, diamonds were discovered in the 4th century B.C. in India, but diamonds were not as prevalent and oftentimes crystal clear jewels, even a diamond at that day would not be called a diamond. It was called a jasper because that was a typical gemstone. But think of diamond as you think of that because that was John's best way of describing it from a first century perspective. If you've ever seen a real diamond, a glistening diamond, a clear crystal stone. He goes on to say in verse 12, and she had a great high wall with 12 gates, 12 angels at the gates and the names written on the gates, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. The nation of Israel is going to be fully and completely represented in this new heavenly Jerusalem today, even as we speak the nation of Israel has come under a horrible attack from Hamas terrorists. Benjamin Netanyahu has declared war. And I would invite you and encourage you as you go through the next few days to pray for the peace of Israel, God's people. Because they will be represented not only by the names of the tribes on the gates, but God's people in the Old Testament and Jews today who know Christ as Savior, who are fully what they are created to be, will be in heaven enjoying its splendor. He goes on to say three gates on east, three on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So think of this city with 12 gates. John's first impression shows that not only is the Old Testament represented, but the New Testament church is represented. The gates have the names of the tribes of Israel. The foundations have the names of the apostles, the founders of the church of Jesus Christ. All the saints from the Garden of Eden until now will be represented. They will be indwelling in that beautiful city. It's something that John was just trying to take in. And remember, he is a first century man 2,000 years ago trying to understand what he was seeing, explaining it through his own experience. Peter Kraft, the apologist and scholar, said it this way. He said, everything smaller than heaven bores us because only, is he only heaven is bigger than our hearts. And it's true, man. We go through this world, we have experiences, we, we have wonderful sights, we see things, we do things. And yet it seems like even today, when we have more information at our fingertips than ever in human history, today when we have more ability to experience and to live out, we seem to be more bored than ever. As a matter of fact, the words bore, bored, boredom, and boring really weren't part of the average vocabulary 120 years ago. People were too busy just trying to stay alive. You didn't have a chance to get bored. 
I remember when I was growing up, one thing I never told my father is, Dad, I'm bored. My father would unbore me <laughs> with a rake or a shovel or a lawnmower. Amen, some of you all? I can't imagine. Dad, I'm bored. My kids didn't like to tell me that either. Come here. I'll give you some excitement. There's a beautiful lawn out there that needs your attention. You won't be bored. But we get bored. The greater we become, the richer we become. The more out in the world, we, we still get bored even more so today. And the reason why is because there is nothing on earth, no experience, no item, no material thing, no person can truly fill that eternal void that God has put in our hearts. We are created for heaven. We are created for eternity. That's why you and I stay dissatisfied most of the time, no matter what. But John just witnessed the magnificence of this. John, a first century Christian who'd never seen the likes of a city even in the 21st century. He wouldn't know what to make of cars flying down the street. He wouldn't know what to make of planes flying in the air. He wouldn't know what to make of iPads and cell phones. He wouldn't know what to make of tall buildings and, and lights that are, that are lit without flame. He wouldn't know what to do with that, much less getting a glimpse of eternity. And yet he describes it. So his first look was of this bride. The way he described it was like a beautiful bride descending. His first impression was of the massive scale of this city and the representation of the Jews and the Christians alike. Just the magnificence of it. But then not only that, he moves on and explains the extravagance of this city. He begins by, first of all, talking about its vaulting dimensions. Now, I'm going to read this description, and we're going to try as much as we can in the brief time we have pick through it a little bit. He begins in verse 15, it says, And he who talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, its gates and its wall. He's going to get the dimensions of this city. It says the city is laid out as a square. You've heard many people speak and sing of the eternal city as being four square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. Well, how long is that? That's roughly 14 to 1,500 miles, give or take. 12,000 furlongs is roughly 14 to 1,500 miles, the breadth and length of this city. He goes on to say, then he measured its wall, 124 cubits. What is a cubit? Well, in biblical measurement, a cubit was the distance between the average man's elbow and his longest finger. And so when he measured, he would measure it out. And of course, that varied because some have larger and smaller arms. But it was roughly 18 inches. And if you calculate it out, it's the size of about 216 feet. So this wall was either 216 feet tall or 216 feet wide. Either way, it's huge. He goes on to say the construction of its wall was of jasper, of glistening stone. And notice this, the city was pure gold, like clear glass. And here's the thing about these descriptive comments. When we think of gold, we don't think of a transparent mineral. Gold, we know what gold looks like. But understand the gold in the holy city in eternity evidently is going to be so pure that it'll be like glass. See-through. 
Notice the walls are like jasper, like pure glass. Even the city is described as shining as jasper. Why are these transparent stones used? Because nothing should be a barrier between the glory of God and the experience. Nothing should hold back the gleam and the shine of God's glory. And heaven is going to be filled with the glory of God. It's going to be amazing. He goes on to talk about the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. This is just the foundation. You know, it's amazing. We chase after gold in this world. We want gold. We'll kill for gold. We'll live for gold. We'll kill for gemstones and all these wonderful things. And I remember an old country fellow once said, it's amazing how much effort we give to pavement because those things are going to be pavement in heaven. Gold is going to be what we walk on. Gemstones are going to be what we stand on. My goodness, what a place this is going to be. Notice the colors, and we'll talk about this a little bit more as we go through it. They were adorned with all kinds of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper. We've talked about that. The second was sapphire. The third, chalcedony. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth, sardius. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The, cent, the, the tenth was an unusual name that i got to stop and really pronounce properly. Chrysoprase. I think I got that right. The eleventh, jacinth. And the twelfth, amethyst. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Now, when I used to think of that, I used to think of this gigantic ground pearl that you walk through. But evidently, these gates were carved and pearlescent. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. So here we see this city. The vaulting dimensions, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, and yes, 1,500 miles high. Some believe it's like a cube, as we see displayed on your screen. By the way, if those dimensions were a city in the United States, that is how much room they would take up. That's how large the holy city of New Jerusalem will be, per its own dimensions, if it is cubular, cubular, a cube. I went to college. Some theologians see it as a pyramid. Maybe that's the case. Whether it's a pyramid or it's a cube, it will take up. That is basically the area that those dimensions describe. This is going to be a city the likes of which we can't even imagine. And as we think of the colors that are mentioned in these gemstones, this is the best representation I could find that demonstrates the various and different colors of the gemstones as we have them today. And again, notice John, again, a first century man describing this city. John, a first century man who is describing things only from his perspective and point of view, using color references that he knew and understood. And I'll submit to you today that the, that the colors in heaven, the colors of these gemstones, because John was in the spirit seeing these things, are probably beyond human comprehension and ability to take in. Does this sound like a boring, fluffy, white place? with clouds and harps. Heaven is going to be exciting. Eternity is going to be exciting. Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many mansions. All the saved and all the saints of all human history will dwell in that magnificent city. 
We will walk on transparent gold, traverse between gates of pure, pure pearl, standing on bright rainbow gemstones in a city the scale of which we could not imagine. Doesn't sound boring to me. Not only will it be bright and exciting and vibrant, not only will it be broad and vast, but as we saw back in chapters 4 and 5, there will be exciting worship. There will be singing and shouting and celebrating in heaven. There's going to be, and, and I'm going to tell you, it's going to be loud. We're going to literally shout, worthy is the lamb that was slain. We're going to sing the praises of our God and King. It's going to be amazing. The Bible says there will be thunderings and lightnings. And in the midst of that city, there'll be a throne. As we saw in chapters 4 and 5, a throne with, with, with radiations of emerald green and ruby red with the Lamb of God seated on that throne. I tell you, I read this and I get excited. I read this and whenever somebody who knows Christ slips from our presence, I get to the place where I almost envy them. Did Jesus go to prepare a place for us? Indeed, he has. And one day, all who know him as Savior, all who have placed their faith and trust in him, will dwell in this city. So we see the vaulting dimensions, the vibrant colors, and its valuable infrastructure. Man, again, we're going to be just walking on transparent gold. What a, what a place this is going to be. You know, many of us take care of our homes. We like our homes. I've been in many of y'all's homes. You do a great job looking after them, caring for them. And it's nothing like being at home. I was away this week, and I was literally in my hometown, Tampa. And I didn't get to go home because my mother's house had sold uh, a year or two ago, which was difficult. But it was, it was okay to be back in that home. But actually, North Carolina has become more my home in the last 32 years. And I can't tell you how good it was coming in on I-85, seeing the baseball up on the thing there, and knowing that that is almost home. Coming into Charlotte on 77, rather, not 85, 77. Yes, the traffic was a mess. Yes, it was kill, be killed in there. You know how it is. But I felt like I was home. And then when I got on 85 from 77, I was on the street that I live on. I-85, rolling into Harrisburg, and then my little house in Harrisburg, I was so happy, and you know what, I got up yesterday, yesterday, or rather Friday in Tampa, it was 90 degrees, I got up this morning and it was 40, <laughs> I love it here, because look at me, do I look like I fit into a 90 degree atmosphere, yes, I grew up in Tampa, I don't know why, I don't look like that, but I love it here. And as I said earlier, I miss my family and love my Florida family. But I have grown to love and I miss my North Carolina family as well. And so whenever we have those instances of getting to go home, even after a hard day's work going home, and even if we live in humble surroundings, as Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz said, there's no place like home. So understand this, folks. What I've just described, or what actually John has described and I've related to you, 
is the ultimate home that we all are longing for. Even unbelievers, yes, even the most virulent and vicious atheist who hates Christianity and anything smacking of God, this desire in their hearts for something better, this desire in their hearts for something grander, is simply that desire, that, that, that heart of eternity that Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that we have, that God has put in every human being as we desire our home. That's why we like the biggest and the best. It's because God has put in our hearts the desire for the biggest and the best. But here's the thing. Nothing on this planet can fulfill that completely. And we won't find fulfillment until we're walking on the golden streets through the pearlescent gates and until we're standing on gemstone rainbows. This is not a fairy tale, by the way. This is reality. How do you know, Pastor? Because the, all the rest of the Bible has proven true and right so there's no reason to doubt it. So no, there, there may be puffy clouds. I don't know, but I'm not sitting on any of them. There may be harps, and Brooks can play the harps if he wants to. I bet you there'll be drums. The Bible says we'll celebrate with drums and cymbals and clashing sounds. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. So we see as we look at this passage, we see John's first impression, a beautiful bride. And it's amazing, the massive gates representing all the saved of all the centuries. We see its vaulting dimensions and its extravagance, its vibrant colors and its valuable infrastructure. There will be no blacktop in heaven. There'll be no tar in heaven. There'll be no, no, no concrete in heaven. It'll be gold, pearls, and amazing stones. The, extravag the extravagance of it is, is mind-blowing. And then finally, we see the brilliance of heaven. And when I say brilliance, I want you to think of the brightness. But an interesting little twist in the brilliance of heaven, what makes heaven so bright and brilliant is not what is there as much as what is not there. See, we oftentimes talk about what's going to be in heaven, who's going to be in heaven. But John spends a considerable amount of time sharing with us what will not be in heaven. And that's the seat of the brilliance and the brightness and the gleam of heaven. Let's read on as we pick it up in verse 22. Notice John said, but I saw no temple in it. Now, ever since King David and King Solomon, there's been a temple in Jerusalem off and on. The Babylonians destroyed it at one time and the Jews built it back up again. And then the Romans destroyed it. And according to prophetic scripture, there'll be a third temple that will exist during the latter days. And yes, the Jewish nation has institutes and organizations that are seeking to rebuild that temple as we speak. This is part of the conflict that is going on there. But the Bible says one day there will be no temple in heaven. There's not going to be a church in heaven. There's not going to be a Jewish temple or any other temple in heaven. It says, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple." See, we don't need to go to worship someplace. We don't need to go to a temple. And we today, are, we can worship anywhere. We don't have to be in this building. So this is a foreshadow of it. But one day we will be in the very presence of God for all eternity. There, there will be no place of worship. We will be in eternal worship. So there'll be no temple in it. Because it'll be saturated with the presence of God. Not only that, there'll be no sunlight or moonlight 
because it will be illuminated by the glory of God. Look what it says in verse 23. The city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. There won't be any sunshine. There won't be a moon. Oh, pastor, but I love the sun. I love the moon. Remember the verse in Isaiah 63? You're not going to care. You're not going to worry about it because you're going to be just surrounded by the brightness of the glory of God. The sun and the moon could not even compete with that. It'll be illuminated by the glory of God. Not only will there be no temple, no sunlight or moonlight, but there'll be no night. Look what he goes on to say. Well, continuing to talk about the glory before we get down there, verse 24, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. And so he goes, why wouldn't it shut the gates by day? Because there's no night. Look what he says. There shall be no night there. You don't have to shut down because it's nighttime. Today, we shut businesses down at night. Today, we shut our houses and lock them up at night. Back in the day, cities would lock their gates and shut their gates at night. They would not permit people to come in during the dark hours because they couldn't see them to check out who they were. But in heaven, there will be no night. There will be no darkness because God is light. Reason why is because God's people are liberated. The earth has been liberated through the power of God. There's no need for darkness. There's no need for rest. You and I won't get tired. You and I won't get bored. There will be no weariness. So there's no temple. There's no sunshine. There's no night. Verse 27, But there shall be also no means to enter, there will be by no means rather enter into it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. There will be no sin in heaven. There will be no sin in eternity. Why? Because it's been purified in the holiness of God. That's why we tell people that you can't be good enough to go to heaven. There's nothing you can do to earn your salvation. Because you'd have to be perfect to go to heaven if you did it on your own. And none of us are. I'm not. Oh, but pastor, I do good. I keep the Ten Commandments. Really? I defy anybody who says they keep the Ten Commandments. I usually ask them, name them. That's fun. I've had people tell me for the last 45 years, when I, some, some people, I shared the gospel with them. I said, do you know you're going to heaven? And they say, well, I hope so. Or what are you counting on to get there? And, and, and probably half of the time I hear people say, well, I'm keeping the Ten Commandments. Really? Name them. And then get three or four of them. Well, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not steal. Um, um, thou shalt not commit adultery. Um, um, and they usually get three or four of them. And I look at them and say, you're in trouble, aren't you? <laughs> Truth of the matter is we've all sinned and come short of God's glory, haven't we? You know, people say, I'd keep the Ten Commandments. Uh, thou shalt not lie. I said, well, you just broke it. We all have lied. We've all done something wrong. And not even one lie will be in heaven. There will be no sin there. There will be no betrayal. There will be no distrust. There will be no arrogance. There will be no anger. There will be no grudges. 
There will be no sin because heaven and you and I are purified ultimately in the holiness of God. So that's why it's going to be a bright, shining, brilliant city. Because all the barriers, all the darkness, and all the sin and sadness will no longer exist. And that is the brilliance of heaven. So we've seen in John's description, and we haven't had time to get into it really, the dimensions of heaven. Whether a pyramid or a cube, it will be 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles high. With jasper walls, 216, either 216 feet high or 216 feet thick or both. Each gate will be carved from pearl. The pavement will be transparent gold. All the saved of the Old Testament, New Testament, and beyond will be represented in its gates and in its foundation. It will be built on gemstones whose color John struggles to describe. There'll be shouting and singing and celebrating. There'll be joy. And there will be no death, no night, no need for a temple because we will be with God worshiping him and he will be with us. There'll be no sun or moon because their brightness could not compete with the glory of God. They will be unnecessary. There will be no night because we will need no rest. And there'll be no negative because there will be no sin. I love what Paul Tripp, author, pastor, talking about forever, he says, forever is more than a hope and a dream. He says it's more than a theological formulation. It is more than a distant spiritual expectation. He says, the creator placed forever inside of you and in me. Longing for eternity doesn't mean that you're spiritual. Because again, skeptics, atheists, unbelievers, even though they won't admit it or they don't understand it, they still long for eternity. It simply means you're human. Again, if you want something better than what you have now, if you want to be somewhere better than you are, if you know that there's something better, something perfect, you're longing for what we have just and John has just described. Nothing on this planet is going to fulfill it. No matter how large your mansion that you can buy one day, no matter how bright your car, no matter how fancy your clothes, no matter how amazing your life experience on this planet, cannot compete with what we will experience in eternity as a gift from God. That means you're human. Life that never ends was the maker's original plan. Adam and Eve were meant to live forever. He told them, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because when you eat of it, you will what? Surely die. And they did Spiritually separated from God, and one day physically Adam and Eve died. Humanity fell because of their pride. Humanity was meant to live forever. And that's why Jesus came to provide salvation so that we can fulfill that desire of God's heart to live forever. The reason why we have death 
is because of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. The germ of that sin has been passed to all humanity. John chapter 3 says we stand condemned before God and if we die in our sin, we will be separated from Him forever. And we've seen in the previous chapters what that looks like. We're not going to mow that yard again. And if we were to try to earn our eternity or try to be good enough or try to be moral enough or religious enough, we could not earn it. There's nothing we can do to earn heaven. Because in order to go to heaven, heaven's a perfect place. And you can't fudge it, you can't come close, you can't hope so, because not even one lie, as we just saw, will be in the purified holy city of God. That's why Jesus came. Because we are imperfect, because we're sinful, because we can't make it in and of ourselves. God took on flesh Jesus descended from heaven, lived a sinless human existence, endured and suffered what you and I endure and suffer, ultimately to his own death. When he died on the cross, he took the blame for everything you and I have ever done wrong, will do wrong, and he paid for that by his death on that cross. He was buried there, and three days later, he rose again from the dead. We sang about that this morning in a beautiful song. He is our living hope. And the word hope is confident anticipation. And through faith in Christ, that desire for the best, the better, the desire for the greatest, the desire for perfection one day will be realized when we close our eyes in death and open them in eternity, if we've received Christ. As a matter of fact, as we close this morning, I want to share with you God's written guarantee of that eternal life. It's 1 John 5, 13. Pastor, do you know you're going to heaven? Yes, I do. Well, that's presumptuous. That's arrogant. No, it's not. it's not. It's not because I haven't done anything to achieve it. I haven't done anything to merit it. It's not because I'm so good or better. As a matter of fact, I'm a sinner just like everybody else. But I know Jesus died for me and I trusted him as my Savior. He rose again from the dead. And this is what John said about those who believe. This is, the, this is your written guarantee in Scripture. He says, These things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Now listen to this. If you've trusted Christ, if you believed in Him and on Him, that you may know that you have. Not that you hope that you get. I'm not trying to live in this world to get to heaven. I'm already a citizen of heaven. I'm just trying to get through this world. I know I have everlasting life. I wonder, do you this morning know that you have everlasting life? I'm not talking about hope so, maybe, I don't know, goodness, I'm trying, I'm being, I'm doing. No, no. Do you know that if you were to drop dead, God forbid, today, that you would immediately go with the Lord in heaven? I know that. And the reality is, I'm not any better or worse than you are. And it has nothing to do with how good or bad I am. It has to do with one day, 45 years ago, I, I learned that I was a sinner and couldn't save myself. I had to own my sin and come to him as a sinner, admitting my sin and, and receiving him as my savior. Believe means to trust and rely upon completely, pastuo in the Greek. That's all it means. 
He said, these things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, that you may know that you have eternal life. This is how, this is your 100% guarantee that if you know your, you, if you know Christ as Savior, you have an eternal home. Everything that we've seen in Revelation 21 will be your dwelling place one day. Not because of you, but because of Jesus. But until then, he goes on to say, and that you may continue <coughs> to believe in the name of the Son of God until we get to heaven as we walk with him on this planet. I got saved 45 years ago. I'm still here. I was telling my Sunday school class this morning, wouldn't it have been great if the moment we get saved, boom, we're transported into heaven, but we're not. We're here. Why are we here? To worship him, to walk with him, and to share this message with other people. Because you and I have been tasked with the responsibility as believers to bring as many of our friends, relatives, associates, and neighbors with us to heaven. That is why we're here until he does call us home. So that is our written guarantee. Peter tells us that we have a home reserved in heaven for us in 1 Peter chapter 1. Jesus said, again, I go to prepare a place for you. He said, if I go to prepare a place for you in John 14, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So my question to you this morning do you know Jesus as your Savior? Have you trusted in him alone as your Savior? And if you do know Jesus as your Savior, are you excited about heaven? Looking forward to heaven? Paul said in 1 Corinthians, set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Oh, I get so tired of hearing people say, well, so-and-so so heavenly minded, they're not earthly good. I'd like to strike that phrase from the vocabulary. Rather, it should be some people are so earthly minded, they're no heavenly good. Are you walking with him? Do you know him? Because you might spend 60, 70, 80, even 90 years here. But what counts is where you're going to spend forever. He's prepared a home. You've heard about it. If you've never trusted him, do it. If you do know him, tell others about it. Let's stand as we close. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed as we have a brief moment. First of all, do you know that you're going to heaven this morning? If you were to pass away, God forbid, this afternoon, would you be immediately in the presence of the Lord? If you can't confidently say that you know that, as John tells us, then I beg you to come to the Lord this morning and admit your sinfulness. Own up to the fact that you're sinful, you're broken, and that because of that, you cannot save yourself. You cannot earn heaven. You'll never be good enough no matter what you do. Realize that and then cast your full faith and confidence on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, who died on the cross to take the blame for all of your sin and future sin. He was buried and rose again from the dead. Fall upon him in faith. Trust him in faith. The Bible says the moment you do that, you can know that you have everlasting life. Not hope that you get, know that you have. Would you do that this morning if you've never done it? You can talk to God. I, there's no prayer. Prayer doesn't save you. But if you need, you can do this in the quietness of your heart. You can just admit to God, yes, God, I'm a sinner. I've sinned. I've done things wrong. I'm sorry. And God, because of my sin, I realize now I cannot save myself. Even no matter what I do or who I am, I cannot save myself. So God, the best I know how, I'm going to cast my full faith and confidence 
on Jesus as my Savior. I don't just believe in Him. I'm going to believe on Him and trust Him that He died for me. He was buried and rose again. Father, save me this morning through my faith in Christ. Now, Lord, give me the ability to walk with you and and live for you and honor you in my life. Would you trust him if you've never done that before? Now, if you're here and you do know Christ, I hope you've gotten a glimpse of heaven that God through John intended us to see. I hope it excites you and motivates you. Who do you know that needs to know this message? Who do you know that is struggling and suffering and sorrowful? Who needs to know that, yes, the rest of the story at the end of the day is wonderful through Christ. Who do you know that you'd rather see in heaven than in hell? I hope that's every person you could ever see or meet. Because there's nobody nobody too bad for heaven and nobody too good for hell. I pray that you will get burdened in your heart for those who need Jesus. And I hope we can fill this church up through our efforts to bring them to him. Whatever your decision, I'm not going to have an aisle invitation because I don't want people to get caught up in that. Walking an aisle is a wonderful thing when it's necessary, but today it's just your decision. You either make the right decision or you won't. It's up to you. Trust Christ as your Savior. If you know Christ as your Savior, how is that changing your life? How is you letting God transform you so that you might long for heaven and live heavenly on this planet? That is your decision. I hope you will make the right one. As we bow our heads, Father, we thank you for this time together. Lord, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, your heavenly abode is so spectacular, Father, that even with John's description, I I struggle to imagine it or fathom it. What I do know, Father, most importantly, is you will be there. Jesus will be there. And through faith in him, I and those who know him will join with that, with that community forever in your presence, enjoying your presence. No more death, no more dying, no more sorrow. Oh, Father, I'm so excited about heaven. As sad as this earth is, this is not the rest of the story. I pray that everyone here in the sound of my voice listening online, I pray that they know Jesus as their Savior. And I pray for those who have known Jesus as Savior. Help us to be more motivated, more excited as we see the days approaching. Until we enter that city that will represent all the saints, old and new. Carry us and help us, Father, we pray. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. For additional sermon resources and to find out who we are, visit us online at westconcordchurch.com. Thanks for listening.